I'd like to thank Hawthorne for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Hawthorne is a premium tailored personal care brand that's making it easier for guys to feel and smell their best. In fact, you can get special offers for the holidays. They're going on right now. Just visit Hawthorne.co. I want to spend most of today's podcast discussing two very high profile IPOs that happened over the last couple of days. We had DoorDash which went public yesterday, and Airbnb that came public today. Now, both of these companies got started up in Northern California, but that's not the only thing they have in common. The other thing they have in common is that neither of these two companies has managed to make a profit in any year that it's been in operation. And it's not like these companies just got started. It's not like the dot-com bubble where companies were going public a year or two after they got started and they didn't have any time uh, to prove that they can make a profit. DoorDash has been in business since 2012 and Airbnb got started in 2008. So that's quite a few years of operations to demonstrate the viability of the business model. Yet neither of these companies has been able to make any money. And it's not because they didn't raise money. I mean, both of these companies were able to raise billions of dollars from venture capitalists. It's not like they went public because they needed the money. I mean, they have billions and billions of dollars that they've already raised. Airbnb, I mean, is a household name pretty much all over the world. I mean, what do they need money for? If you go back to the original concept of the IPO, what would happen is a company that was small but profitable, that had a business model that worked on a small scale, and you could demonstrate that it worked to bankers, right? Let's say you are a small business owner, uh, maybe you have restaurants, you know, to you know, to be something uh, like DoorDash, you know. But you let's say you operate a handful of restaurants in a local community, and maybe you came up with a novel concept. It's an interesting menu. It's got a theme to it. Maybe you have a very efficient way of running uh, these restaurants, and they're very profitable. You're making a lot of money on your restaurants, and then you think, wait a minute, why don't I scale this up? If I can make all this money on you know, five or 10 restaurants, what if I open up 50 or 100 restaurants or 500 restaurants? I can make a lot more money, but I don't have the resources. I don't have enough money uh, to make those investments. So let me go to a Wall Street banker. Let me show him my business and how well it's doing and, and demonstrate that we could just scale this thing up if I only had access to a greater pool of capital. And so that's what IPOs would do. They would allow a small business to get the capital it needs to expand a concept that already has proven that it works. Well, we have no idea if Airbnb or DoorDash will ever work. All that we know is that they're losing a ton of money. In fact, in the first nine months of this year, DoorDash lost, I think, a hundred and $49 million, uh, you know, delivering food. That's nine months. And, you know, there are other companies that do this. You have Uber Eats, right? You got Grubhub. Uh, Uber Eats lost $183 million during the same period. Grubhub 
lost 92 million. So they're the star performer. They, they almost broke even, but they still didn't make money. So you have all these other companies that are doing the same thing uh, that DoorDash does, and they're not making any money either. Nobody has proven that you could make money with this business model, yet they're already going public. And if you think about the fact that DoorDash and Airbnb, they've already raised billions of dollars, billions of dollars from VCs, and yet they haven't been able to use that money to turn a profit. So why is it going to be any different with this new money? As I was describing, when you have the small business that has already proven that it works and that it's profitable, it needs money to expand its operations. Airbnb, where is it going to expand? It's already all over the world. There's Airbnb in every country. They don't need any money at all. What they need is to make a profit. They don't need more money to do that. They just need to cut their costs or raise their prices. The last thing they need is an IPO. So why are they going public? It's got nothing to do with a traditional old-fashioned IPO where a company needs money to expand. They don't need any money. They got tons of money. I mean, one of the most successful uh, modern IPOs was Microsoft. Microsoft went public in 1986. But when they went public, they were making a lot of money. It was a very profitable software company. And in that IPO in 1986, Microsoft raised $61 million. That's it. Now let's compare that to the IPOs for Airbnb and DoorDash. Each of these companies raised approximately, I don't remember the exact amount, but each of these companies raised about three and a half billion dollars in their IPOs. Three and a half billion. Microsoft only raised 61 million. Now I know there's been a lot of inflation since 1986. If you take the CPI, which is the government's version of inflation, which I agree understates it, but let's just use the government numbers for the purpose of this analogy. In 1986, this consumer price index was at 110. Today, it's at 255. So if you adjust the Microsoft IPO for the CPI in order for Airbnb or DoorDash to have raised an equivalent amount of money that Microsoft raised, their IPOs would have been 140 million. Instead, they're more than 20 times that. They're not raising 140 million. They're raising three and a half billion. What are they going to do with the money? Other than subsidize their existing losses because they're hemorrhaging money, Microsoft wasn't losing any money. It was making money. Microsoft needed that money to expand, to take a viable business model that had proven to be successful and to expand it into a much larger company by tapping into the public markets to raise capital. DoorDash and Airbnb don't need to tap into the public markets to raise money. They've already raised billions in the private VC market. That market didn't exist uh, in the Microsoft days. It exists now. And in reality, the only reason that we have IPOs today is so that the VC investors can cash out, right? It is not 
so the companies can raise new money to expand. They've already raised all the money they can. They've expanded the businesses as much as they can. And now they want a payday. But the one thing they haven't expanded is their earnings because they don't have any. And in fact, I don't even think the venture capitalist wanted earnings. All they wanted was revenue. See, the business model of these VCs is to find a sexy company or sexy story, a company that's you know starting up in a space that's kind of the sweet spot, and provide them with billions in order to subsidize their losses while they grow their revenues and their market share, which is very easy to do. It's very easy to attract customers when you can lose money. If you don't have to worry about being profitable, you can grow your market share. You can even drive smaller competitors out of business uh, because they're trying to make a profit. And if you're not, you can undercut them because you've got these VCs that are willing to subsidize your losses because they're looking at making up for those losses when the company ultimately goes public because the investors aren't going to give a damn that the company is losing money. They're just going to want to get in on a hot IPO because they think an even bigger fool is going to pay an even higher price. And that's exactly what happened because both DoorDash and Uber Eats, despite these sky high valuations, I think the valuation uh, on these companies was $30, $40 billion just based on the IPO price. But both of these stocks, I think, doubled uh, what the IPO, the investors rushed in uh, to bid these stocks up. I think the uh, Airbnb market cap now is about $90 billion because it's already doubled uh, the IPO price earlier this morning. But this is where all these investors, the earlier investors who have been funding all of these losses this is how they cash out. This is how they make a profit. And the bag holders are the people who are buying these IPOs. Now, of course, some of the people who are buying the IPOs are not going to be holding the bag. They're going to flip them. Right? So the bag holders are the ones that are still owning these stocks in six months, in a year, in five years, because by then, these businesses, these stocks are going to be dramatically lower in prices because the VCs have already been paid. They've cashed out. At some point, it's put up or shut up when it comes to making a profit. And since most of these companies are not going to make a profit, and certainly the companies that we're talking about, I don't think uh, DoorDash is ever going to make a profit. Personally, I think DoorDash is eventually going to go out of business. I'm not sure how long it's going to stay in business, but I think it's ultimately going to go out of business. Maybe it'll merge with somebody. I just don't think they have a, a viable business plan. I mean, think about it. These guys couldn't make money before COVID. If they could make a profit before COVID, how are they going to make a profit after COVID? I mean, their customers are restaurants. I mean, this isn't rocket science. Restaurants are closing their doors by the tens of of thousands. I think more than 70,000 restaurants have already permanently closed this year. Now, I'm sure there were a lot of those 70,000 restaurants were customers of DoorDash. Well, those customers are gone. DoorDash couldn't make money when those customers were still in business. How is it going to make money in the future when they're not in business. So the pool of restaurants that could potentially hire DoorDash is going to be smaller in the future than it was in the past. And they couldn't make money in the past. Also, I think a lot of these restaurants are going to be under incredible pressure 
to survive the higher cost in a post-COVID world. They have higher overhead. They have fewer customers. So I think they're going to be very cost conscious. One of the reasons that DoorDash probably doesn't make money is because it's probably not charging the restaurants enough money to cover the cost of the delivery, or it's not charging the customers, whoever's paying the cost of having a food delivered, because all DoorDash wanted to do was generate revenue and have a you know growing list of customers, and they had all this venture capital money that they could fund the losses. They're able to uh, price their product in a way that made it a good idea. But at some point, uh, DoorDash is going to have to raise prices that it charges for deliveries. And at that point, a lot of the restaurants are going to decide that it's not worth it because the consumer is not going to want to pay. I mean, let's say you're ordering a $30 uh, meal and there's a $8, $9 delivery charge. The people might say, okay, it's worth it. I don't, I don't feel like getting in my car and driving five minutes to pick up uh, you know, my, my lunch, so I'll pay somebody $9 to deliver it. But what if the delivery goes up to $30? I'm getting a $30 meal and it's $30 to have it delivered? Well, forget that. I'm just going to go pick it up myself. I think that's what's going to happen. I think other restaurants might decide, you know what? I'm not going to pay DoorDash or Uber Eats or Grubhub. We're just going to deliver the stuff ourselves because the cost of delivery has now gone up to the point that our own people can do the deliveries or maybe a few uh, local Uh, restaurants can get together and share a common uh, guy to do the deliveries. There are all sorts of ways that restaurants can find a way to deliver their products to their customers without involving DoorDash or any of DoorDash's competitors, right? Uh, So I don't think this business model is going to survive. I think the fact that it hasn't been profitable yet, it's been around since 2012, They couldn't make a profit pre-COVID. No way they're going to make a profit post-COVID. I don't think the business survives. Yet here it is going public. Everybody is celebrating, but nobody is focusing on the lousy fundamentals of the business. I mean, the industry that they're in is terrible and it's highly competitive to boot. And look at Airbnb. I mean, that's another business that's been decimated by COVID. It's travel. People are not traveling as much, so they don't need uh, to stay in Airbnbs. Now, yes, I know that maybe next year things will pick up, but are they going to be bigger than they were before COVID? I don't think so. Yes, they might not be as bad as they were in 2020, but I don't think it'll be as good as it was in 2019 or 2018. And who knows what's going to happen? I mean, we could get another disease. I mean, we now have a protocol for how to handle uh, these types of diseases, we just shut everything down. We stop all the travel. So I think this has made the travel and leisure business a lot uh, riskier, a lot more expensive. I think a lot of these Airbnb hosts are gonna find out that they could be in a lot of trouble. A lot of these guys might've borrowed money that they can't repay. And you know, there's a lot of regulatory risks. You got the hotels, you know, that want to sue these guys because they don't think they're complying with local laws uh, because they obviously they don't like to compete uh, with Airbnb. You've got labor uh, law problems because again, DoorDash, just like Uber or Lyft, right? They they have independent contractors who are doing these deliveries and uh, governments might want to claim that, hey, these are actually employees and you need to pay them uh, higher wages. You need to pay them benefits. You need to pay taxes. So there's all sorts of 
problems, potential problems that could blow up in the future. And the companies haven't already made the profit in the past. I mean, they're already losing money. And what I see is the potential for these losses to get even bigger, not even smaller. I mean, there's no way that these companies should be going public. And there's no way they could have gone public, you know, 30, 40 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, it would have been impossible. People would have laughed at them. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. I mean, think about the example that I gave earlier guy has a few restaurants and he wants to expand, right? He's making money. He's got a great concept. It's really proved out on a local level and he wants to take it national. He wants to take it global. And so he wants to raise money. What if the same guy who has a small group of restaurants went to a Wall Street banker and said, hey, I'm operating, you know, five of these restaurants and, you know, I want to raise a bunch of money because I, I want to scale this thing up. I want to open up more restaurants. I want to open, I want to go nationwide with this concept. And the bankers are like, okay, well, how much money are you making now? And he said, well, I'm not making any money at all. I'm losing a bunch of money. Matter of fact, every restaurant I have loses money. In fact, I'm losing so much money, I need this IPO because I need to subsidize all my losses. You know, do you think this guy would would, would make it out of that meeting and laugh him out of the door? I mean, what do you mean you're not making any money? Why aren't you making money? Maybe he says, well, you know, the reason I have all these customers is because my prices are so low, it's cheaper to eat at my restaurant than cook at home. And so I've got a long line of customers because I'm practically giving away the food. And I just want to expand nationwide. I want to have a whole chain of money losing restaurants. So can you help me go public? Right? There's no way that would ever happen. But that's actually what's happening now with the VCs. Because this is not a public market, the venture capitalists who are funding these companies, they are funding those business models. They are giving entrepreneurs money to expand their money losing businesses. And in fact, the money that they're giving them is subsidizing the businesses and enabling the expansion. These businesses would have died much sooner if they didn't have all that VC money to blow. And they're able to use that money to take a losing concept and expand it. But then the only exit strategy for the venture capitalists is the IPO, 
where the public can ultimately end up in these stocks. Now, of course, you know, initially when you have the IPO, a lot of funds want it, a lot of investors want it because they know that the price is going to go up. It doesn't matter about the losses or the prospects for future profits. None of that matters in the frenzy of the IPO. Everybody wants to buy it because they know it's going to go up. The question is, who is going to get caught with the stock when the music stops? Because it's a game of musical chairs. And as long as people are bidding up the price and you can have it in your statement at a higher price, well, you look like the hero. But at some point, somebody is going to be left holding the bag because the bottom is going to drop out eventually of these companies because they are not viable. They can't make a profit And if they try to make a profit by raising prices, they destroy their business model. Now, I do think eventually my guess is that Airbnb will find a way to make a profit. I think they will at some point. Again, I don't think DoorDash ever will. Uh, So I think that stock is going to zero out at some point. And, you know, maybe it'll get bought out by somebody before it goes to zero. Uh, But I think Airbnb uh, is going to survive. I have no idea what it's worth. I don't think it's worth anywhere near the $90 billion. I mean, it's probably worth 80 or 90% less than that. I don't know ultimately what the valuation is going to be, where they can find the profit. I mean, I think it's there somewhere, uh, but I have no idea what changes the company is going to have to make in order to become viable. But I think it's probably something that could be done. But that doesn't mean you buy the stock. The stock is extremely overpriced. The smart money is the guys that are getting out. That's what the IPO is. It's the cash out, right? It's not the opportunity to grow your business. I don't think Bill Gates cast out much money, if anything. I'm not sure how much cash he put in his pocket when they went public in 1986. But the way Bill Gates made his money is because Microsoft is a much bigger company today than it was in 1986. They were able to really grow their business by putting that capital, that investor capital, to good use. They were able to use it to expand their business. I don't think there's going to be any expansion in Airbnb's business. It's probably already peaked as far as what their revenues are. It's probably going to, they're probably going to have less revenues in the future than they have now. Maybe they'll have profits uh, at some point, but they're going to have lower revenues. And again, I think the same is true for DoorDash. I mean, they probably peaked last year. It's probably all downhill from here. I mean, you're you're basically buying a ticket on the Titanic when you're buying DoorDash. I mean, remember, what was that stock I talked about? Blue Apron. Remember that one? I went over that Blue Apron IPO on this podcast. I mean, Blue Apron came out at like $20 a share, but it did a reverse split. So if you go back to split adjusted high in June of 2017, when Blue Apron went public, split adjusted, the stock was $165 a share in June of 2017, just over three years ago, $165 a share. It's $7 a share right now. What's that loss? That's a 95% decline in the price of Blue Apron stock. Yet Wall Street brought that turkey public. They had no problem selling that stock. uh, And they're doing the same thing, I think, with DoorDash. It's the same basic concept. I mean, maybe it's not as ridiculous as selling recipes or whatever Blue Apron was doing. But to have so many publicly traded companies or companies in the business already 
and all of these companies are losing money. Not a single one of them is making money. And there's really no barriers to entry for more companies to enter the space. Although why would they when nobody who's already there is making any money? So what's the point of, of, of somebody else joining that money losing party? But it should be obvious that the business model does not work. And it may be impossible to make it work. And Potentially to make it work may mean that it's on a much, much smaller scale with a much lower revenue. And obviously the business is going to have a much lower valuation than what investors are paying today. Hawthorne is a premium tailored personal care brand that's making it easy for guys to feel and smell their best. So if you're looking to take your self-care routine to the next level, Hawthorne is there to help. They've got high quality products that are specifically tailored to your needs. In fact, they'll even give you free shipping, not only when you buy the products, but if you return them because you're not satisfied, you can ship them back for free. In fact, they'll even give you suggestions based on your feedback of which products may work better for you. It all starts when you take their online quiz. I took the quiz. It's very thorough. It's very easy. They ask you a lot of questions. What kind of hair you have? What kind of skin you have? What type of products do you prefer? And then once they build that profile, they come back with all sorts of suggestions as to which products they think would best suit your needs. And then you just hit click and buy them. And next thing you know, they're at your door. In fact, they'll probably make some great Christmas gifts. The favorites so far for me, I like the body wash, I like the facial scrub, and I like the deodorant. I mean, they're all good, but those in particular, you know, they're nice and clean smell. They're not uh, perfumey, but they do have a masculine fresh scent that I like, and I think you'll like them too. You can get special offers for the holidays. So go right now by visiting Hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne, H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O to check out their special holiday offers. Now, of course, a lot of people are going to look at what's going on with these IPOs and think, oh, you know, this is, see, this is why capitalism doesn't work, right? Because capitalism is enabling all these money losing companies to attract capital and ultimately go public. And this is a failure of capitalism. It's not a failure of capitalism. I mean, capitalism would not bring this about. This is the Fed. This is the artificially low interest rates that has turned Wall Street into a gigantic casino. And that is where all this money is coming from. That is what is fueling uh, these money losing companies. That's why there's all this cash to fund these businesses because interest rates are so low and money is so cheap that these type of companies can attract all this money. If they had to pay a market rate for interest, if you didn't have all this cheap money coming from the Fed, then none of these companies would be able to sustain the type of losses that they've been sustaining because they wouldn't be able to get the venture capitalists uh, to finance it. So that's why, you know, your DoorDashes or Uber Eats, Grubhub, you know, or Postmates, that's another one that, that that's competing in the same space. Again, it's a very crowded field of money losing delivery companies, but it's the Federal Reserve that is enabling all this. They are fueling the bubble. And another part of the irony, and, and this is, you know, a, a point, and I'm not the only person who's made this point, but it is very ironic because a lot of people are like, why isn't there more inflation, at least on the consumer price level? Why aren't we seeing 
uh, higher prices. You know, the Fed is creating all this inflation. We're printing all this money. Why are we not seeing the effects of that in prices? And one of the reasons is because a lot of these new businesses that are being subsidized by the venture capitalists, they are able to sell their products at a loss. And that loss is keeping a lid on consumer prices. Because if a company is selling customers products for a dollar that it costs a dollar twenty to produce, in a real economy, that wouldn't happen. That company would have to charge a dollar thirty or a dollar forty. So the consumer is getting a break because the company that he's buying from is funded by venture capitalists that are willing to lose money in the short run for a big payday when they go public thanks to all the cheap money by the Fed. But not only does the customer directly benefit from that subsidy, but that money-losing business, which is funded by cheap money coming from the Fed, that business puts competitive pressures on other businesses, right? Traditional businesses that don't have a bunch of VC money to lose, that actually have to make a profit, that would be able to raise their prices if they didn't have to compete with these money-losing companies that are being kept alive by the Fed. But because they do have to compete with those companies, they're not able to raise their prices to the degree that they could if those other competitors weren't there. And so by printing all this money and giving life to all these zombie companies, they're putting pressure on the regular companies and preventing them from passing on the higher inflation into higher prices uh, for their products. So paradoxically, by creating inflation, the Fed actually helps suppress consumer prices by keeping money-losing companies in business who can continue to sell their products for less than the cost of production. And I think, you know, that has been what has been happening at DoorDash and maybe even Airbnb too. Maybe one of the reasons that Airbnb is losing money is because it's not charging its hosts enough, that it's the hosts are keeping too much of the pie compared to what it costs to operate this business. And to the extent that they had to charge more, they had to take a bigger slice of the pie, uh, then they may lose some of their hosts. And, you know, it, it may make the business less attractive uh, to to people who are operating or or using their places through Airbnb. Because remember, a lot of people can cut out the middleman. A lot of people with the internet and people have all sorts of apps. I mean, you can rent out your place directly. You don't need to do it through Airbnb. It's not like if I want to search for uh, a place to rent, that that's my only alternative. I have to go to Airbnb. I mean, anybody can list their place online. And if you're, you know, you're looking for a good deal, you can find it right? You don't need them. And so if they start to take too big a cut, then they're going to lose their customers. People are going to just cut out the middleman. So right now, maybe they're taking a small enough piece that the hosts think it's worthwhile to be part of that system. But obviously, whatever uh, Airbnb is charging, it's not enough to actually make a profit for Airbnb. Now, of course, they haven't cared about that. Uh, They've just been trying to drive their revenue. And now, They're cashing out. But I don't think it's an accident that these companies are coming public now. I think the insiders realize that this is it. I mean, they got to pull the ripcord now and bail on these companies because they can see, right? They're operating them. They can see how bad their businesses have been impacted by COVID. 
and how much worse the prospects are to operate these businesses in the future. And they know if we couldn't make a profit before COVID, there ain't no way we're ever going to make a profit uh, post-COVID. So we can put all the lipstick we want on these pigs, but we know they're pigs. But the public doesn't know or they don't care because they want to play this game. They just want to get in on these stocks because it doesn't matter. They're going to hold their nose and buy them because they know somebody else will pay a higher price. And in the short run, uh, they'll be able to make money. But again, inevitably, the bottom has to drop out of this house of cards. Uh, prices are going to come crashing down. And in fact, if you look at all these IPOs that have come out for money losing companies over the past few years, they're almost all down. They're almost all way down. I mean, Blue Apron isn't the exception. I mean, there's a lot of Blue Aprons out there. People have very short memories. Look at a lot of these stocks and look at how much they've gone down. Yes, there was some short-term profits for the people who got in and got out, but somebody got in and didn't get out by definition, right? There's a lot of bag holders and there's going to be a lot more. And while I'm talking about bag holders and bubbles popping, I want to also talk a little bit more about Bitcoin because when I talked about Michael Saylor over at MicroStrategy on my last podcast. I actually recorded that podcast before I'd actually seen the news story that day that actually sent shares of MicroStrategy down about 13% because Citibank downgraded MicroStrategy from a buy to a sell, which is very rare. I mean, they didn't even go to a hold. I mean, they went all the way to a sell. I mean, you rarely see an analyst put a sell on a stock. I mean, a hold is basically a sell. You know, they just don't want to come right out and say it. So you have to read between the lines and that, okay, this stock is a hold. That means get get rid of it. Uh, so when you go to an actual sell, you know, you're not just telling people to read between the lines, but you're just saying, hey, get rid of the stock. There's a reason for that. And what happened was that MicroStrategy announced that they were going to be borrowing $400 million dollars by issuing some convertible preferreds. Uh, They're gonna borrow this money, $400 billion, and they're gonna use the proceeds to buy more Bitcoin. Now, this is crazier than their earlier decision to buy Bitcoin, which I did discuss on my last podcast because according to Michael Saylor, they had a lot of cash just sitting on their books that they had earned, and they didn't wanna pay it out as dividends, which is what they should have done. I mean, if they didn't, you know, have a good use for the cash, if they didn't have a place to invest it, they should have just declared dividends and paid out the cash. And and then if the shareholders wanted to use their dividends to buy Bitcoin, they could have done it or they could have done whatever they wanted with it. But he decided that, hey, we don't want to lose this cash because the Fed is printing all this money. There's going to be inflation. So we want to put this cash someplace safe. And so we're putting it in Bitcoin. And I made the point on my last podcast that that made no sense because Bitcoin was riskier than cash, that if he really wanted something safe, he could have bought gold. Or if he was just worried about the dollar, he could have bought Swiss francs or you know Australian dollars or Singapore dollars or some basket of currencies if he was worried mainly about the Fed and quantitative easing. There were a lot of things he could have done uh, without buying Bitcoin. But if, on the other hand, now he's not just saying, I want a safe place to park my cash. I want to borrow cash that I don't even have. 
I want to go out and borrow money and then I want to take that money and I want to use it to buy Bitcoin. So now he's basically on margin. He's leveraging up the balance sheet of MicroStrategy and he's taking all that borrowed money and just buying Bitcoin just to gamble on what might happen to Bitcoin. Clearly turning this company from a software company to a leveraged Bitcoin hedge fund. Well, I mean, City is not going to recommend that. I mean, that's not why this stock is being bought by investors. Now, are there some investors that want to buy this because they think it's going to go up with Bitcoin? Sure, I get there's some speculation there, right? People are willing to buy in the short run because there's a bid there because it's, oh, it's it's Bitcoin. It's, it, you know, it's benefiting from this big Bitcoin run. But City, how are they going to put a buy recommendation? This, this really shows me that sailors, you know, I think he's kind of off the deep end here. I mean, he's he's kind of like a, a gambleaholic. You know, he's actually now, like, he, he's not satisfied with just buying the Bitcoin with cash. He needs to buy more. He needs to go into debt to keep on buying. This really, I think, is a problem uh, for this company. And no analyst should have anything but a sell recommendation on this stock. I mean, nobody who's looking to invest in a stock should be buying MicroStrategy. And in fact, I was reading this article where they're talking about that grayscale and microstrategy are in this race to see who can buy the most Bitcoin. Well, I can understand why grayscale is buying Bitcoin because it's a Bitcoin trust. It's supposed to buy Bitcoin. MicroStrategy is a software company. It's not supposed to buy Bitcoin, but now he's turning it into some kind of Bitcoin ETF. But of course, you know, the reality is in the race to buy the most Bitcoin, whoever does buy the most Bitcoin loses because the more Bitcoin you have, the more Bitcoin that you're going to lose. Now, I know that all these Bitcoin uh, promoters are trying to say that companies like MicroStrategy, right? These are the forerunners. These, this is the smart money. These are the visionaries. These are the early adapters that, you know, all the other institutional money is going to follow. And this is just the beginning, right? This is the first step. And you're going to see a lot more buying. In fact, I read an article today uh, that Massachusetts Mutual ha- uh, put $100 million into Bitcoin. And so they're pointing out, you know, you have a few examples uh, where some of these companies have somehow got suckered into testing the waters. You know, again, it's just like with the IPO, they get enticed. They see these big returns and they get excited and they get greedy and they want to put some money in there because they want to get in on the action. They want to get in on the party. These are the latecomers. These are the bag holders. There are not a lot of institutions that ultimately are going to come into this space. They're, they're never going to touch it. And I think any of them that do, I think any serious money, any pensions or endowments or mutual funds or anything like that, any managers that go into this, they will seriously regret this decision. It may end up being a career-killing decision. They may end up losing their jobs because they were foolish enough uh, to get into this bubble. That's what I think is going to happen. But I also think that this downgrade of MicroStrategy to a sell could be very problematic for Bitcoin. And in fact, Bitcoin did pull back on the news along with MicroStrategy. It traded back down below 18000 uh, yes, I think it got down to about 17,600 or something like that. I forget where uh, the exact low was. As I'm recording this podcast, Bitcoin is trading between 18,300 and 18,400. So it's a long way below. Remember, we almost got to 20,000. We got to 19,900 and something. 
And here we are now, you know, almost $2,000 of Bitcoin lower, which is about a 10% drop. That's despite all of this pumping. Again, I pointed out that the Grayscale Trust, which is the largest buyer of Bitcoin, is probably the largest advertiser on CNBC. It is nonstop ads. If you turn on CNBC during any 15-minute interval, you're going to see two or three uh, Grayscale commercials, right? So on an hourly basis, you know, there's probably a dozen of them. I mean, I don't know, every time there's a break. I don't think CNBC takes a commercial break where at least one, if not two of those commercials are drop gold uh, by Grayscale. I mean, that's constant. That's all you see. Yet despite that constant pumping, and not only that, but half the guests that come on CNBC are asked about Bitcoin, right? Or they're making pie-in-the-sky forecasts about where Bitcoin's going to go. Nobody's negative. You know, you can't speak a negative word about Bitcoin if you want to you want to get invited on CNBC, right? So either you have to admit that you're buying it and it's going uh, to the moon, or you just have to say, look, I don't buy it, but, you know, I don't understand it. It's a new asset class. So, you know, I don't know. You, but you can't really, you can't say it's a, it's a con, it's going to crash, it's going to zero, because you'll, ne- you'll never get on. So despite all that one-sided coverage and all that pumping, we're at 18,000. We're not at 28,000. We made a new high and then the market went down. And nobody is accepting or wants to entertain the possibility that what we've just made is a big double top. Now, is it possible that Bitcoin is going to get through 20,000? And is it possible that the bubble is going to get bigger? Sure, anything is possible. But it's also possible that this is a double top. And if so, Bitcoin has a long way to fall. And anybody who buys into it is going to lose a lot of money. But it's the same concept as the people who are buying into DoorDash or buying into Airbnb. A lot of people who are buying into it know that these companies are never going to make money. I mean, what would make you think that they're going to make money? I mean, what about their past suggests that there's ever going to be a profit in their future? I mean, there's nothing to base that on because they've never been able to achieve a profit. And if the business climate is going to be more hostile in the future and therefore even harder to make a profit, if they're going to have fewer customers and their customers are going to be even more cost conscious in the future and therefore even more resistant to higher prices or less likely to continue to purchase your services or look for an alternative, do it themselves or look for something cheaper, it doesn't make any sense. I think a lot of the people who are buying these stocks, they know that the companies aren't going to make any money. They just figure they'll make money before other investors figure that out. I think that most of the people buying these stocks are intending to flip them, right? They're not going to hold these stocks for the long term because they can look back and see what's happened to these IPOs from the past few years. And they realize that if you hold on to them, you lose right? You can't marry these stocks. You could date them for a few weeks and maybe a few months, and then you got to break up because otherwise you're going to be stuck, uh, you know, with a crazy, uh, crazy girlfriend that you can't get rid of, right? That's, that's the reality. And so the bubble, I think, on these stocks is going to pop a lot quicker because I think the investors have already got one foot out the door uh, when they bought. So we'll see how long Uh, these stocks can stay above their IPO prices. But at least when it comes to DoorDash or Airbnb, 
you can entertain the possibility that these are viable businesses, even though there's nothing to really base that on. At least in theory, they could make a profit in the future. There could be some value there, but I don't see any rational argument for any value in Bitcoin, right? These companies could eventually have some type of value. What that is, I don't know. So they may not go to zero. They may find a a market that's viable. They may they may find a business model that works on some kind of scale. And so there may be some value to this business or these businesses, which I think is likely far below the valuation that they're sporting today. But I don't see anything that is going to create value for Bitcoin. So I think as big as these bubbles are, the Bitcoin bubble is even bigger, but it's all based on the same logic. It's the same greater fool. I'm going to buy something because I think somebody else is going to pay more for it. It doesn't matter if it has no value. It doesn't matter if it can't deliver on any of its promises because the price is going up. And as long as the price is going up, nothing else matters because if I buy it, then I'll make money. And if I don't buy it, I'll look like a fool because the people who do buy it will look smart and I'll look dumb because I missed out. And so because I don't want to miss out, I've got that fear of missing out, then I'm going to buy it. And at the end of the day, you know, especially if you're buying with other people's money, which is what's happening with a lot of uh, the investors in these IPOs, ultimately it's not even their money, so they don't even care. In the short run, they just want to grab these stocks because they know it's going to goose their performance. In fact, anybody who is lucky enough to get uh, the Airbnb or the DoorDash IPO, chances are that the stock is still going to be much higher than the IPO price at the end of December, right? And that's going to really help out their year-end statements, right? You really want to get some winners in December because you want to have that a statement because that's the end of the year. It's also the end of the quarter. You get your bonus, your quarterly bonus, your year-end bonus. So you want to try to goose your performance uh, as much as you can, even if it means that you hurt your performance next year when the bottom drops out of these stocks. But if you can get them into your portfolio now, you can stuff them in there. They're like the stocking stuffers for the Christmas uh, bonus. But if you can stuff a lot of these turkeys into your portfolio now, well, you're going to get a bigger bonus right at the end of the year because it's going to help your performance. So I think that is what is driving because people are not even investing their own money. They're putting other people's money into obviously overvalued stocks because they know in the short run, everybody else is going to make the same mistake. And because they're just marking the stuff to market, it's all paper profits. But none of these paper profits ultimately matter in the long run when the stocks come crashing down. And the same thing is going to be true with uh, Bitcoin, right? All the people who are sitting on these big piles of profits that think they're so smart and they think I'm so dumb because I don't own any, none of these paper profits are gonna matter when they're gone. They're just gonna be memories. People are gonna have memories of the profits that they had, but they never took. In the meantime, I'm gonna have real profits that I earned because I avoided losing money in those bubbles. And instead, I focused on the real value. I bought the assets that other people were ignoring because their heads were caught in a bubble and they, they, didn't, they didn't see reality. And so at the end of the day, I'm holding the winning hand. And everything that I'm seeing, all of the fundamentals, uh, that are playing out are simply ratifying 
all of the concerns that I've had over the years, all of the the forecasts that I've been making, all of the macroeconomic events that are unfolding today simply ratify everything that I've been saying and everything that I've been warning about. And I think the people who have been following my advice and who have been investing accordingly are going to end up on top. We're going to end up making a lot of the money uh, that other investors lose.